Hi, I'm Mark Lynch, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome back to the POMEP's Middle East Political Science Podcast, our series of conversations with leading scholars in the field. Uh, with us today is Chamil Aden, Professor of History at the University of North Carolina and the author of a new book, The Idea of the Muslim World, A Global Intellectual History, which was just published by Harvard University Press. Uh, Chamil, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's an honor. So this book is a really wonderful uh, tour de force, almost, of the history of the idea of the Muslim world. Um, and it, it's a genuinely global intellectual history, um, which I think makes it different from a lot of what we've read or I've read over the years about this. So tell us a little bit, um, just very briefly, about what you think the main purpose of this book is. You know, what ideas are you challenging and what is it that you're trying to get across? Uh in, in many ways, uh, I wanted to uh, engage with the contemporary discussions on Muslim unity, Muslim solidarity, or the Muslim exceptionalism by uh, going back uh, to the last 200 years to try to understand the genealogy and the roots of that idea of, of words Muslims constituting a global community and, and a shared political project. Um, Many of us uh, uh, fight against the idea of clash of civilizations and Islam versus the West. And there, there are different respectable ways of doing that. I have, been, I have participated in those and I joined workshops that you organize. Um, but we, what we uh, often do is to show the diversity and plurality of Muslim political visions, try to challenge the essentialist narratives about Islam and the West. But while we, we still need to do this, um, I also want to show when we began to imagine Muslims as part of, um, of a shared global uh, unity or uh, racial uh, composite. And, and you make this very, yeah. this very counterintuitive argument that up until the 19th century, there really was no Muslim world. Yes, yeah, so it doesn't mean that uh, many different Muslims in different parts of the world uh, uh, not have uh, they, they always had different uh, global or regional imaginations, but it doesn't match uh, with our current conceptions of a Muslim world extending from Senegal, Morocco to Indonesia. This most common expression, this this great unity uh, from Bosnia to Bengal. Um, and, uh, you know, the different, and I think I uh, some of the very good reviews mentioned this, is that Different Muslim legal scholars may have uh, categorizations about the land of Islam versus the land of um, uh, the land of non-Muslims, uh, and there is also in between the sort of land of peace. But these are legal classifications. We have to ask who made them, when, where, who read them, and how they applied to them. The fact that there were such legal categories uh, doesn't mean that uh, these legal categories were, were almost like a party program or a doctrine, that every Muslim child had to read it like a Mao's red book in China and memorize it and then imagine the word accordingly. We have, to, we have to account for that Muslims lived in empires and there are different empires in different parts of the world. There were so many different caliphates, especially after the interventions of the Genghis Khan and Mongolian empires. The imperial practice and the art of imperial governance were so developed, so different, um, that it never, it could never be explained by the legal categories of Sharia in any way. 
So you summarize the argument in some ways with this, uh, this, this nice sentence. You say, the idea of the Muslim world was created by imperial globalization and the reordering of humanity by race. It's quite a mouthful. Um, uh, that's, what I was trying to tell is something very counterintuitive, that the, there were so many Muslim kingdoms and empires, and I, I, I tried to count them. I reached beyond 300, and I stopped counting them. But even around 1800, there were about 30 of them, from some in, you know, in, in West Africa, East Africa, just in Ethiopia, around Ethiopia, there were four or five of them. Um, and uh, so uh, the, the assumption is that Muslims were united and the European colonialism divided them. So what appears unintentionally is that there were so many different Muslim kingdoms and, and, and polities, but it was the European imperial hegemony that united Muslims on, on two accounts. One, of course, there were fewer political units that ruled over them, especially British Empire that at some point ruled over almost half of world's Muslims. Um, and second, uh, the European categorization, almost racially, uh, of, of, uh, of Muslims constituting a separate group uh, between the yellow race and the black race and white race, extending from China to, uh, to Europe, um, actually created the first intellectual boundaries of imagining uh, a, a Muslim war. So it's almost so like you uh, needed yes. to have this this imperial globalization for even the concept of a Muslim world to make sense. Yes, exactly. And that, of course, we many of our scholars also uh, thought about the content of that idea that just around that time at the age of, of the peak of European empires, we have the steamships and the telegraph and much more people began to travel much fast. And they were themselves were actually surprised by the diversity of the Muslims, so that uh, uh, Indonesian or an Indian pilgrim coming to Mecca, seeing other pilgrims. And we, we shouldn't forget, there were always pilgrims coming to Mecca, but the numbers of pilgrims coming to Mecca increased more than 10 times in the 19th century, thanks to steamships. And, and then the information circulated much faster, too. And, and it's at that point, I, I think, modernist Muslim intellectuals feeling the need to talk back against the European discourses of Muslim inferiority, um, created a, a set of arguments and narratives that uh, gave uh, a stronger content uh, in terms of civilization and in terms of religious values to, uh, uh, to reinforce that geopolitical idea of the Muslim world. And of course, then the story becomes more complicated, 1870s, 1880s onwards. Mm -hmm. And, and one issue, of course, I, I, I read the first set of reviews. I'm very thankful to my colleagues who reviewed the books in the last two months. Um, and many of them uh, want to discuss more of, of how, how does religion turn into a racial categorization. And yeah, I, I was going to ask I you exactly discuss. that. Yeah. And I, you know, of course, the shortcut, just, I will say, just look at the, the experience of being Jew in the, in the last 200 years. There were always Jews in the last... Uh, um, uh, several millennium and uh, two millennium, and um, but then you can't imagine being Jew without the experience of anti-Semitism in the in the nineteen the modern anti-Semitism of the late nineteen and, and especially twentieth century. Um, the, the the religion can be racialized, and, and for the, for Muslims, you know, I, I refer to Ernest Renan's argument about. Uh, 
uh, Islam and science. And it, it looks like it's a scientific scholarly discourse. But Renan's categorized Muslims as a Semitic race together with Jews. It's one categorization. Says because of Islam's fanaticism, Muslims cannot do science, they cannot do technology as an explanation about history. So we, we can have a racialization by uh, giving a historical narrative of Muslims prone to violence, not accepting Christian rulers, which are all not true. You know, from 1857 to 1947 in the British Empire, there aren't as many Muslim rebellions as we imagine that, that there were. It would have been not interesting... It would have been interesting to see a bit more about the differences between uh, the French and the British uh, empires in this yes, regard. Uh, so, in, in many ways, I strategically focused on the biggest one, <laughs> and there were, there were different practices. But there is also a trans-European exchange of ideas. Uh, uh, for example, Ernest Renan's speech was immediately translated into Russian and English. It says, Islam and science are, are contradicting, whatever that means. The silliest argument ever. But... And there were hundreds of Muslim refutations, which is equally important. So mm -hmm. it creates uh, a shared community of discourse responding to prominent European intellectuals. Um, so you're, you're right that, uh, you know, that, for example, in French, uh, uh, notion of citizenship actually allows um, an Algerian Muslim to be a French citizen. But they have to renounce Sharia. There are so many obstacles that actually that openness to become a citizen end up reinforcing racialization through religion. British practice is different, obviously, that there are subjects, uh, and now there's a new movie coming out on, on Queen Victoria and um, Abdul Karim, her, uh, we call it servant, but Queen Victoria never liked it, uh, her um, uh, instructor, Munshi. Hmm. And you know, there, there's some sort of a seemingly more inclusive empire here. The Queen Victoria is very proud of her uh, Muslim subjects and everything. But there's also exclusions applied to Muslims. Um, and so I, I could say that, yes, I could have focused more on Russian, uh, French, Dutch, but there's also uh, an attention that needs to be shown to the trans-imperial vocabulary and repertoire on Muslim race and Muslim civilization. Now, one of the things which is so interesting about the book is that you constantly show the interaction effects, that it's not just European discourse, um, it's also the Muslims themselves are responding to this and developing their own identities and ideas in response to that Western discourse. That you have, this, again, this wonderful line, Muslims themselves strategically essentialized the notion of the Muslim world that contradicted their own experience. And that's a very interesting dynamic that you fleshed out there. Yeah. And I think one simple summary for, um, for IR scholars and political scientists, and I myself was surprised to read this, is that the Ottoman Empire um, instrumentalized the idea of the Muslim world to reinforce um, uh, or to justify Ottoman-British alliance. This is mm -hmm. something highly overlooked because we, we read history from the perspective of 1914 Ottoman young term jihad, where the Ottomans are with Germans declaring holy war against Britain. But that was not an inevitable conclusion. Up to even 1913, the main Ottoman argument, main Ottoman fear is actually Russian expansion. Mm -hmm. An Ottoman army knows its weaknesses. Almost one-fourth of Russian army's power. So they could never win one-to-one -one war against Russia. And they, they, there's nostalgia for the Crimean War, 
where we have a war, but the Britain comes, mm-hmm. and France comes, that's even better. Um, and Abdul Hamid, you know, who's considered the father of pan-Islamism, is very aware of that um, that weakness of the Ottoman, a strategic weakness, and he's trying to preserve an empire. But at that moment, he kind of strategically argues that um, he is a spiritual authority over Muslims ruled by uh, by British or French or Russians, and he will use that authority for peaceful means. So the first hmm. Pan-Islamism is a project of inter-imperial peace, and we forget about this. It's not for yeah. Jamaat. Is that the Muslims are forming uh, as a glue that connects and create peace and prosperity among different empires, and that of course will then guarantee the Ottoman Empire's sovereignty and and Ottoman Empire's right to rule over Christians. That's extremely mm-hmm. important. And this runs through the entire book, this notion that it's great power politics and the search for great power patrons and the kind of the game of nations, which is constantly interacting with these uh, kind of more abstract ideas and discourses. Exactly. And, uh, and I, I, in, in, there's a kind of a period from the abolishment of the caliphate yeah. to almost uh, mid-60s, where King Faisal of Saudi Arabia emerges almost like another... Uh, Abdul Hamid of the Cold War. <laughs> and in that case, there's a... Yes, the Caliph of the Cold War. That was a great phrase. Yeah. It's like, and there's a surprising repetition where this time the, the Saudi-American alliance being justified with the notions of Muslim world. And that's, of course, Saudi Arabians need to uh, respond to the challenge of secular Arab nationalism and pan-Arabism of Nasser, which has its own respect for Muslim and the idea of the Islamic world, but mostly to the Soviet Union. Uh, and that alliance of 1764 onwards then revives a, a kind of a forgotten discourse of Muslim solidarity. And there are many different actors mm-hmm. coming from Pakistan and Egypt. And, uh, and as the first Ottoman British pan Islamism turns anti British with the Young Turk Jihad, the second Saudi American pan Islamic project turns anti American after Khomeini. So there's some sort of ironic repetition. Hmm. But Things that change, of course, during that period is equally important. For example, in the first one, South Asian Muslims are very important. South Asia always had more Muslims than anywhere else. Even today, if India were united, there would have been half a billion Muslims there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in the second one, the Arab Muslims become the leader. The Arab Muslims are kind of in the background in the first. That, you know, and that's funny because I was thinking that that's almost an unstated or unargued theme of the book. It's almost like the de-globalization of this idea of the Muslim world, that it, you know, the Arab world almost becomes a stand-in for the entire Muslim world, when obviously it isn't. One of the beauties of your book is that it does have the, uh, not just uh, South Asia, but you go out into China, Japan, Southeast Asian Muslims. Um, there really is a global world of Muslims, even if there's no single Muslim world. Uh, yes, and uh, and there are so many uh, ironic changes, and now there are movies coming on Gertrude Bell, and there's all these things about Lawrence of Arabia. <laughs> if you actually read the text from 1880s, and my favorite is uh, Wilfred Blunt's uh, book on the future of Islam, and it, you know Blunt is a good example of this kind of first pan-Islamism. He thinks that the Turks are giving Islam a, a bad PR because they're so militaristic, they're an empire. Arabs are passive, and they are giving a good name to Islam. And if you take the leadership of Islam to Arabs, then Islam will be revived under British protection. So he thinks that kind of an alliance between British Empire and the Islamic world 
will be the greatest thing that will help Britain to rule half of the world and it will help Islam to get back this authentic true form. Of course, today, if you read that text, it will look ridiculous. But, <laughs> Uh, we, we also have to kind of historicize different actors' contribution for very different purposes yeah. for that. So in terms of, you know, the contemporary relevance of the argument that you're making, I mean, I mean, obviously part of it is simply to develop this global intellectual history and this subtle interaction between power politics and, and ideas. But you're also clearly very concerned about this kind of recurrent uh, clash of civilizations discourse. Uh, I once called this the endless recurrence of the clash of civilizations. And you have an interesting argument here uh, that, uh, again, just to quote it, you say that the amnesia about the late 19th century origins of Muslimness helps to explain why these essentialist ideas about Islam versus the West uh, keep coming back again and again and again. Now, this, this is quite interesting that um, you do see these things, these patterns repeating themselves, and yet they seem, we seem to be unable to break them. So, I mean, if you were to summarize, you know, why do you think that we're now living in this era where these you know, very kind of simplistic or naive ideas about Islamic exceptionalism, clash of civilizations, um, you know, the, these essential differences are so back in, uh, in, in control right now, despite all of the uh, progress we've made? Yeah. Uh, no, this is a great question, and I, I have to think a lot about about the remedies. What are the solutions? Of course, as a as a nerd historian, you could always say that if people know more about history, <laughs> that they can have the immunity against uh, bad narratives. As a political scientist, we don't believe that. <laughs> that's, so good. that's very good. Uh, so, and 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 of course, writing this book, uh, being publishing this book after Trump is also very uh, ironic in the sense that. Donald Trump's Muslim ban or kind of new Islamophobia, which actually originates in, from 1980s onwards after Salman Rushdie affairs, again created the kind of outer boundaries of the Muslim world. Right? The, the racism, the new racism against Muslims, actually uh, create the context for Muslims to talk back, to defend themselves. And I'm telling for uh, one message for the subaltern Muslims is that ask for your rights. Uh, whether in America, in Europe, and other places, without being trapped by the poisonous bad narratives, right? That sometimes they think that that uh, the narrative, the old narrative of Muslim solidarity to um, pre preserve themselves or to negotiate with the colonial powers or the white powers, uh, might actually be uh, uh, not serving their interests, but actually. Yeah. Further racialized them. I mean, I remember you—you you argued that this whole this whole point of trying to promote how Islam was not backward actually ended up reinforcing the entire yeah. racial distinction. So we create a story of, of Muslims always united. They have history almost without Armenians, Hindus, Greeks. Uh, Muslims always lived with others. They were also erased from from history in many ways. Um, but the other part for. For them, is, is the idea of intersectionality. If there are injustices in Palestine or India or other places, uh, we should all work together. We should try to reinforce international organizations, international global norms, and create intersectional alliances. Um, and my example is, is is that imagine only black Africans trying to liberate uh, uh, black people from apartheid. Would that have worked? Uh, then it would have created this kind of only blacks fighting for Nelson Mandela would have been 
ridiculous, right? I mean, his, uh, you know, his struggle was a global struggle. And if there are any injustices that, that is hurting Muslims, which there are, that the solution would, would be to create uh, intersectional alliances. And what went wrong after 1980s is actually the kind of collapse of other internationalisms, either left or liberal or right. And the assumption is that only Muslim solidarity could actually help Muslims, um, which created the counter-narrative that these Muslims are actually not having links with others and, and they are almost isolated from the rest of humanity as if they are from a separate planet. <laughs> so I, I try to think about these uh, symbiotic relationship between racism against Muslims in the West and uh, the, the Muslims' own pan-Islamic mode of thinking that their solidarity is needed to empower them. It, 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 it's, almost, it's almost like... It's almost like the, the, these images or these discourses are too useful to all sides to ever yeah. be discarded. Exactly, and I think we, we might need to, uh, by, by showing how, they, how constructed they are, denaturalize them. I showed that this is a fiction, and we can think differently, right? We can have, we can imagine an, a, a different future, a different uh, path. Um, that, that doesn't mean that the subaltern Muslims don't have any right to imagine a politics based on their religious values. That's, that, as a Muslim, I also do that, that, that some of my values come from the example of Prophet Muhammad and others. But then that, that, that shouldn't be a trap. Some of my values also come from example of Martin Luther King or uh, Martin Jr. or Nelson Mandela. So why, why am I only thinking that any norm will only come from a, a specified narrow notion of, of religion? Um, but there's a bigger question that I think that, that IR scholars, we should cooperate to think about. It. It's, it's also the collapse of the international institutions and the norms. And I, I think greatly about this transition to 1980s. Even back in the 1970s, we were thinking that, you know, that the last utopia of human rights, or before that, the United Nations or, or many other institutions would actually solve problems. And you don't need these regional alliances or, or racial alliances. But somehow, um, I think the, the big elephant in the room is, is that the whole international order is defective. That when there is a problem, there is no place to appeal to, find remedies, find solutions. So it actually pushes different actors to, um, to, to find these regional, racial, religious solidarities as a solution because they don't find any other solution out there. And, that, I think, you know, that we have to give hope that with solidarity, in other form, other kind of solidarities, we can really find solutions to the existing problems. All right, great. We've been speaking with Shemil Aden of the University of North Carolina. It's a brand new book, The Idea of the Muslim World, A Global Intellectual History from Harvard University Press. Shemil, thanks for joining us. Uh, thank you, Mark. It's my pleasure.